Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of IRL Horror. I'm your host, Buexo, and today we are continuing on with part two of Real Life Fiction, where we will dive into more murders and discuss whether or not fiction can make a murderer. You don't want to miss this. First of all, I'm sorry for the bit of a long break here. I was dealing with my own grief and real life stuff, but I'm back with some more terrifying realities for us all. So in the last episode, we talked about Danny Rowling, otherwise known as the Gainesville Ripper. If you need a quick recap, Rowling was a mass sicko who went on a weekend long murder spree, killing five young innocent people in Gainesville, Florida. He violently raped, murdered, mutilated, and left these young people in disgusting and the most shocking poses he could for first responders or whoever would find them. He was caught because of some robberies in the area, and it was then discovered that he had also committed a triple homicide in the same manner in his hometown prior to these murders. Aside from that, he had also shot his father twice. While in custody, he tried to maintain his innocence until one day he decided, never mind, and used his friend in jail to confess, but tries to tell everyone that it's another personality in him that actually committed the murders. Turns out he had watched The Exorcist 3 either a day or hours prior to the murder spree, and the movie was quite clearly the inspiration for many of these actions, as well as using a name from the movie to give a name to this supposed other personality, which professionals have said is not the case with him. In Rowling's case, he has committed either attempted murder or actual murders before he had seen The Exorcist 3, so I'm going to go ahead and assume that the movie itself didn't make him a killer but perhaps gave him some ideas going forward, or at least gave him what he thought might be an excuse. Now, I can't speak for what he was watching before the first murders. I think it would be interesting to know what kind of media he was consuming, but as far as I can find, The Exorcist 3 was the only movie spoken of, which he did watch just before the Gainesville spree. Now, I went down this rabbit hole because the newest Scream movie came out earlier this year, and I was very excited for it. It's my favorite horror franchise. With that said, the story, or rather the screenplay, was inspired by the Gainesville Ripper. We can see nods to the case in the original movie. From a mass killer who is obsessed with horror movies, who typically waits until his victims are alone to violently murder them with a specific knife, and stalks them to wait for the right time. Not only that, but it takes place in a small town, and the victims are mostly young, innocent, and certainly undeserving students. 
the murder spree in the movie also taking place sometime after an original murder, although the motives there aren't the same. If you're curious, the original murder in Scream, the catalyst, is the murder of Sydney's mother the year prior. In 1994, Kevin Williamson wrote Woodsboro Murders, which was inspired by an ABC news show called Turning Point that was discussing the Gainesville Ripper case, the murders themselves having taken place in 1990. Woodsboro Murders may sound familiar to those of you who are fans. It was what would then become the script for Scream. And a fun fact for those of you who like the franchise, the Woodsboro Murders was also what they called Gail Weathers' book in the movies. According to Kevin Williamson, who wrote Scream, the inspiration came from watching the news coverage of Rowling's case. He wanted to capture the intense, spooky atmosphere he was feeling while watching this unfold. I can't blame him. It's crazy to know that these are things that really happened. These are things that someone actually did. Actions most people can never fathom. Things we do see in fiction and try to comfort ourselves with the knowledge that it isn't real, that it doesn't happen, that there's no boogeyman. That's just not true, though. The boogeyman does exist. Many of them, in fact. They're just people. That's what makes it all actually terrifying. Now, we've talked quite a bit about the Gainesville Ripper case and Danny Rowling, and I wish I could say that that was the end of that, but it isn't. Just as Kevin Williamson was inspired by Rowling, there have been other murders, yes, more than one, that have been inspired by horror movies. And while there are plenty of murderers who have claimed movies made them do it, or inspired their actions, we do have a few to talk about that were specifically inspired by Scream. So we have this weird cycle now where fiction inspired gruesome actions through rolling being inspired by The Exorcist 3, which inspired more fiction to be made in the form of Scream, which then brought on some more IRL horror through more murders. The first case we're going to talk about is Cassie Jo Stoddart. Now, this is a case I heard about when it happened, and fair warning, it's another case of a young person having their life taken from them. Anyways, it's still something we're going to discuss because she still deserves a voice. In 2006, Cassie is a young student. She's a good kid. She's 16 in high school has a boyfriend named Matt that she's crazy about. She's doing typical teenage stuff, like trying to save up for a car. So she's taking on extra responsibilities for that, like babysitting. So when her aunt says, hey, we're going away for the weekend, can you house sit and watch the pets? She jumps on it, turn a little more, and show that she's responsible. You know? Who wouldn't? A big house to yourself and... All you have to do is take care of a few cats and dogs and chill. Sounds like the jackpot to me. As far as I can see, Cassie is a good kid. She didn't get into trouble, and she was certainly someone they could trust to do this. They also lived in what everyone would consider a safe place. The house itself is in Pocatello, Idaho, on Whispering Cliffs, which is a spooky name. I'm not going to lie about that one. It's fitting for this. 
whispering cliffs. Yeah, it's creepy. Cassie had apparently asked permission for her boyfriend to come over to spend some time with her there, which her family said was fine. I have to assume she was excited for that as a 16-year-old with a boyfriend and a whole big house to themselves, you know, it should have been a great night. So it's not just Matt who shows up. He or they've invited two of their friends to watch movies with them. They are classmates named Brian Draper and Tori Adamchik. They come over and start watching a movie. Kill Bill, if you're curious what movie. Shortly after, Brian and Tori tell them that they're not into this and they'd rather go watch a movie at the theater. So they leave. Once they're gone, Cassie and Matt are hanging out and the power goes out. She's understandably scared by this, but her boyfriend is trying to reassure her that it's fine. Matt also notes that one of the dogs was acting a little strange. He would go to the stairs by the back and watch them and bark, go back to the living room, rinse and repeat kind of thing. It doesn't look like he went and checked out what was going on, but I don't blame him for that one. They're young and the whole thing is just scary. At some point, some of the lights come back on, so they've calmed down a little bit more. Cassie is still scared though, and Matt wants to help, so he asks his mom if he can stay the night, trying to explain why. His mom says, uh, no. You know, like any mom would. They're 16 in a house alone, but, you know. I digress. Cassie, still being scared, his mom offers to let her come back to their place to help her out, but Cassie declines because she's trying to be responsible. You know, this is what she's getting paid to do. So Matt leaves and Cassie is alone in the house. She decides she's going to chill and have her own movie night or whatever. Exactly what I would have done at 16. Well, actually, it's exactly what I would do now. The power starts going off again, so she's scared again, which, yes, anyone would be. She decides to just stay in the living room and wait it out or whatever. I can't begin to imagine what was going through her mind. A few days later, her family comes home to discover the door unlocked, which is odd. But her cousin goes in and finds Cassie in the living room, stabbed to death. Cassie had been stabbed something like 30 times, about a third of those stabs being fatal. So clearly quite a violent crime. There was nothing missing from the home. It was not a robbery. No one even attempted to make it look like one. So obviously a personal crime as well. The police first put their eyes on Matt, which makes sense. He was the last person known to be with her and her boyfriend. They question him and apparently think his reaction to the whole thing is odd, suspicious even. I've heard some accounts that say he didn't show much, if any, emotion to the entire situation. Even though it was his girlfriend and had he still been there, it could have also been him. Or maybe he could have prevented it or whatever would go through someone's mind in that situation. It was just strange behavior from him. So the police try to see what they can get from him, and of course he tells them what we already know, what happened that night. 
because it was determined that Cassie had been killed that night and not like right before her family got home. So police know that they need to look at Brian and Tori. What we know about Brian is that he had a big old crush on Cassie, but she wasn't interested in him. Obviously, she had a boyfriend. They were all just friends. We also know that Brian and Tori were loners. They were big movie buffs and lovers of the horror genre, which, hey, can relate. They also like to do things like film their own lives and make their own movies. It was kind of just something they did because they were just super into films. I think for a lot of people, that's where the fascination and love stays. You watch movies, read books, play games. Hell, you even create podcasts. But these two just couldn't keep it to that, apparently. So there's not going to be dragging any of this out. It was Brian and Tori who viciously and brutally murdered Cassie. Like I mentioned, Tori and Brian were very much into film, but the horror genre itself. Their love of it didn't stop there. They were also fascinated by real-life serial killers like Bundy. Sharing in these dark interests, they even admired these infamous killers. They liked the idea of the attention that they got, that they were known for taking lives, for being monsters, and unfortunately, they wanted a taste of that. Apparently, they bonded over the shared uh, interests, and they encouraged one another until they decided that they were going to go for it and made this plan to kill, Cassie being their first target. Now, I mentioned their love of film and horror for a reason, one of them being that Tori's favorite movie was Scream, and it did play a part in how they planned to kill and did kill Cassie. And like I said earlier, Scream is very much a kind of love letter of sorts to the horror genre, so that isn't surprising to me. I also mentioned it because it played a big and interesting in a weird and messed up way part in Cassie's murder and subsequently proving Tori and Brian committed the murder, I'm sure. So as part of their love of film and wanting a claim to fame or whatever it is they thought they'd get, Brian and Tori recorded all kinds of things, including them planning out Cassie's murder, among others. Some of the footage is available online for the public. Others aren't, but the transcripts can be found. I did come across one where Brian and Tori are driving and recording, and they are discussing a prospective female victim of some sort, and they talk about how they're going for a high death count, and that they will make history. Essentially, that they will be famous. They then go on to taunt any future FBI agents that would be watching the recording, saying that they weren't smart enough or fast enough to stop them that they're going over to someone's house right now to snoop around and kill her if no one is there. So part of their motives here are quite clear. A lot of it sounds like a weird, insanely messed up power play. Not only did they record their planning, but they planned her murder out like some sort of horror movie. There is footage of a clip of them online talking about how they found their victim and how perfect it is. Here is the exact wording from the clip. Brian. We found our victim, and sad as it may be, she's our friend. But you know what? We all have to make sacrifices. Our first victim is going to be Cassie Stoddard. 
She's going to be alone in a big, dark house out in the middle of nowhere. How perfect can you get? I mean, holy bleep, dude. Tori. I'm horny just thinking about it. Brian. Hell yeah. After this conversation, they talk about another female prospective victim that is home alone, and they say that they might stop there first, then go kill Cassie, and that they will kill them one by one. Then Tori asks, why one by one? Why can't it be a slaughterhouse? They seem to be quite aware that what they are doing is wrong, that they are sick psychopaths. They acknowledge it more than once in these recordings. They seem to relish in it, make light of it. A couple of quotes from Brian being, We are sick psychopaths who get their pleasure off killing other people. And murder is power. Murder is freedom. Goodbye. Even more chilling, they wish future serial killers who are watching these recordings good luck. And later talk about how their patience is going because they've tried to kill something like 10 times already but weren't able to catch their victims alone and stuff like that. The dynamic between these two is just, I don't know. I don't know what the word for it is in this moment, but it's so wrong and messed up, but it's also quite interesting to see the actual footage and dynamic between people who are capable of this and did do it. It's obviously more rare to find two people working together like this. Although I will say that Brian tried to play it off like he thought that they were playing a joke on Cassie once they were caught, and that it was all Tori who did it and forced him into it. The tapes certainly show otherwise, though. Anyways, enough about them. They don't deserve the attention they wanted, but obviously we can't discuss any of this without talking about them a little. One thing I will point out as well is in the original Scream movie, there are two killers. In fact, there may possibly have been three, which is a theory if you've watched the later movies, but that's neither here nor there. The official killers and the ones that did really commit the crimes were two best friends as well. Two best friends that were obsessed with horror movies and planned to basically blame fiction for their acts although they were also completely aware of their own true motivations and that what they were doing was wrong. Other similarities to the Scream movie include the weapon of choice, which was a knife. The case of Cassie's murder was dubbed the Scream murder case. Because of their fascination with the movies and the similarities between the movie and the case itself. I mean, really though, who records their confessions in real time? then mocks future FBI agents. It's it's just stupid. I know they were teenagers, but come on. Maybe try to be famous for something smarter, better, do something good with your life. I don't know. Why this? Why? I think that's the real question here. Why? I know that Scream certainly played a role in this murder. I don't doubt that. I don't think I'd go as far as to say that it caused them to murder. They were already interested in actual serial killers, even admired them. I think much of the appeal of slasher or horror movies for them was possibly living out some of those fantasies on screen, but I'm not sure I would go as far as to say that fiction caused them to act. It is interesting to look at how it may have played a role, though. 
If you're curious about their sentencing, they were both convicted and are still, as far as I can see, to this day, trying to get their sentences reduced or changed. This was premeditated, planned, evil, and committed by both of them. So they should probably just stay put where they are. More importantly, though, a young, promising, innocent life was lost because of this. Because two people decided that they were going to murder someone for no real reason. Not that any reason is okay, but really. For no other reason than they wanted to get off on it. They wanted to be famous. Cassie's life was taken from her. From her family, friends, boyfriend, loved ones, from the world. She wanted to be a lawyer. She could have made such a big difference in this world. She wasn't given that chance, though, and that's not okay. It's so far from okay. The amount of damage something like this causes for the people who love her, who found her, to the families of the murderers even, so many people's lives are affected by such senseless, despicable acts. That's a big reason why I do this podcast. Because it's not just about the acts themselves and murderers. It's so much more. Unfortunately, these are not the only cases that can be tied to horror movies, specifically Scream. The popularity of the franchise has made its way into other media and become well-known to movie lovers. The ghost face mask has become a horror icon We can even see nods to the movie and to the real-life inspiration for the movies in other places. Take the game Dead by Daylight, for example. Those of you who watch me stream on Twitch or have seen my gaming channel on YouTube know I love this game. The game does have licensing agreements to use characters from some well-known horror franchises, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Pyramid Head from Silent Hill, Nemesis from Resident Evil, and, of course, Ghostface. Although the ghost face in the game wasn't actually licensed from the Scream franchise, but rather the company that makes the costume. So they couldn't call the character Ghostface, or use the character background from the movie. Instead, they made up their own. The name they chose to use for the character's real name and his background information? Danny. Now, I have to assume someone over at Behavior knew what they were doing when they did that. Otherwise, it's a weird coincidence. If you need to be reminded, Scream was inspired by the Gainesville Ripper, whose real name was Danny Rowling. So it's easy to see the effect the franchise has had on horror lovers. It's been forever since the last Scream movie, aside from the one this year. And yet when Halloween rolls around, you see ghost face masks everywhere. And it's been like that since the movie first came out. With that said, there are other cases where the franchise has been used as an excuse, a blueprint, a way for sick people to live out sick fantasies, I guess. So we're going to briefly discuss three more cases where Scream played a big role. We are actually going to jump to another part of the world for this next case. January 1999, in North Yorkshire, England, Daniel Gill, 14, and Robert Fuller, 15, lured unsuspecting Ashley Murray, a fellow 13-year-old boy, a classmate, to 
to a secluded spot in a nature reserve where they stabbed him 18 times, 11 of those in the head, and left him wrapped in a garbage bag. Ashley was found 40 hours later, still alive. He spent nine months in a hospital, and he obviously suffered a great deal of damage and trauma. He was left disabled and with paralysis on one side of his body. They had missed the largest blood vessel in the brain by only a millimeter. He managed to stop the attack by pretending to already be dead. He also had a collapsed lung, fractured rib, and hypothermia. Apparently, the two attackers had been doing drugs and black magic, according to a report, while watching the movie, and that blurred the lines of reality for them under the influence of a local drug dealer. The two had recently watched the Scream movie and sketched pictures of the ghost face mask were found among other things during the investigation. I can't find much on or speak to their motivations. I can't actually find much online about these people at all, but it has been made clear that the movie did play a role in their actions. The two were sentenced to six years each, but it looks like they only served three with parole. Unfortunately, Ashley did pass away in 2012, at the young age of 27, in a drunk driving accident that he caused. I'm sure having lived with the events that happened to him and the trauma associated with that was very difficult for him. And although he survived the initial attack, he still passed away very young and in, a, in very sad circumstances. I can't even imagine what he went through and how that must have affected him. Now, in the most recent case I've looked at within the Scream franchise happens to take place in France in 2002. 15-year-old Alice was lured out under the guise of a walk by her neighbor. A 17-year-old only identified as Julian. Julian apparently wanted to know what it was like to kill someone after watching the Scream movie. He bought a ghost face costume and went through with his plan to kill his neighbor, Alice. She was found stabbed 42 times in a square near their homes before she succumbed to her injuries. Her last words were to the person that found her. They were reportedly, quote, smile at me, I'm dying. Now, a lot of the news coverage on this case was obviously in French, and I had trouble finding a lot on it or about Alice herself, but the murderer's identity was protected for legal reasons. It does look like the murderer, only known as Julian, was sentenced to 22 years, and he was convicted and sentenced at the age of 19. And the last case we're going to talk about is of Gina Castillo. She was a 37-year-old mother from Linwood, California. In 1998, after being obsessed with the first movie and seeing the second, her son, 16-year-old Mario Padilla, and his 15-year-old cousin Samuel Ramirez decided that they were going to be serial killers too. They thought that the Scream movies were the perfect killings and they wanted to copy them, even going as far as to try to bring another friend in on the killings and calling the perfect killing, doing a scream. On January 13th, 1998, they killed Gina after she grounded Mario 
and asked him to do some chores by stabbing her 45 times with a few different knives. They planned on continuing to kill and wanted to purchase a ghost face mask and voice changer to do so, like in the movies. They planned on using the $150 she had saved up for her newborn daughter to do so. Gina was able to make a 911 call and did tell dispatchers who stabbed her. In later statements, Mario claims it was all scream, that it was TV and movies, and that you shouldn't let your young children watch them. The judge banned mention of the franchise in the courtroom and wouldn't allow the case to be referred to as the scream case. He wanted the case to be dealt with as any other murder case would. Psychologist Madeline Levine told CBS that there were a whole bunch of reasons why they acted out the way they did. But when asked if the movie provided a blueprint, she said absolutely. Quote, you need a cat to copy. In this case, Scream is the cat. Mario was sentenced to life and Samuel was sentenced to 45 years, if you're curious. I do think that the quote from the psychologist about the movie providing a blueprint or a cat to copy, if you will, is a good way to put it. Now, I'm certainly no expert, but there are so many lovers of slashers and horror movies, me being one of them, and we don't go out and murder people just because we've watched a movie a gazillion times. It's just not something people do. I think that there's got to be some sort of correlation between media watched, but there's also got to be so much more going on to have people take others' lives, you know? I think that these people need to already be sick, already have the makings, the upbringing, the whatever, to have these thoughts at all, let alone act on them. I don't think movies or media can ever be solely blamed for people's actions. I think that media can make a good excuse in people's minds, a scapegoat, although it doesn't seem to have worked for any of these cases, and rightfully so, I think. But before we talk anymore, I'd really like to take a moment to remember the people who have lost their lives that we've discussed over the last two episodes. Remembering that most of them were very young and that all of their lives were taken way too soon. William Tom Grissom, Julie Grissom, Sean Grissom, Christina Powell, Sonia Larson, Krista Hoyt, Tracy Paulas, Manuel Taboda, Cassie Jo Stoddart, Ashley Murray, Alice Beaupierre, and Gina Castillo. I'd also like to give my condolences to their loved ones. I hope that their memories live on and that bringing awareness and voices to their cases helps with that or help someone else. So I think we've made it full circle now. What do you think? Can movies make a murderer? We've looked at multiple cases where movies inspired actions and even discussed how actions inspire fiction. Would these people have murdered regardless? Would these lives have been spared? Is it only media that's responsible? Or is it more complicated than that? I'll let you decide that one. And on that note, 
with those chilling cases and questions on your mind. I will end it here. In the meantime, thank you for listening. And until next week, stay spooky and please stay safe. Thank you.